0: Hello and welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles or Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. You're listening to the abridged version of this episode if you'd like to hear the extended uncut edition you can for as little as one dollar a month by pledging to support the podcast and the Cosmic Shambles Network. You'll get access to extended episodes of Book Shambles each week as well as all sorts of other goodies like free tickets to our events and so on and so on and etc. Go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. It's a forward slash but you know that
1: again. Hello, hope you're well. Welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here to remind you about some upcoming events we have in the diary. Next up is the Slapstick Festival. That is this coming weekend, uh, January 24, 25, and 26. We'll be down there doing a number of different events. There's a book shambles on the Sunday with uh, Joe Neary and Sophie Ratcliffe looking at the work of PG Woodhouse. Uh, We're doing a 50th anniversary special with the goodies. We'll be talking about Laurel and Hardy on the Friday, uh, sorry, the Saturday night with Robin and Stephen Merchant. All the details for all those events and all the other events uh, at the Slapstick Festival are on the Slapstick Festival website. Go and check those out and hope to see you there. Thanks to everyone who came to the Book Shambles live at the British Library this past weekend as part of the Chortle Comedy Book Festival with Robin and Josie and Les Dennis. Uh, Obviously that episode was recorded and that will be out soon. And we've got some other uh, live book shambles coming up in the near future as well, which we will let you know about very soon. Sea shambles, obviously May 17 at Royal Albert Hall. Uh, Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People and the Compendium of Reason uh, at Christmas. Ages away, but tickets are on sale now, so make sure you get uh, the best seats now. Lots of new stuff on the website too, on the blog network. New stuff from Dean Burnett and Susie Gage and Robin and other people. Check that out. Patreon.com slash Book Shambles is where you can go to support this podcast and everything we do at Cosmic Shambles. Get extended episodes and uh, we'll be announcing the new Patreon bits and bobs uh, in hopefully next week uh, if everything goes to plan. But we will obviously keep you up to date on that. And uh, I think that's enough uh, for this week of me prattling on. So this week's guest is uh, someone that we've done lots of stuff with at Cosmic Shambles. Uh, we've been touring with him last year and this year with the Universe of Music show, which he hosts with Steve Pretty. It is Professor Chris Lintop from uh, The Sky at Night and the University of Oxford. Uh, put those in whatever order you see fit. He is chatting with Robin and our guest co-host this week is Helen Chersky. Uh, Josie will be back more or less full time uh, in the next few weeks. We've got lots of recording sessions uh, in the diary with Robin and Josie and some special guests. Obviously, that's how this works. You know that by now. We've done nearly 200 episodes. In fact, we may have done over 200 episodes. We lose count. Uh, So if we have done more than 200, let us know. Anyway, here is this week's episode. It is Robin and Helen and Chris. <music> Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's
0: book Shambles. Today, the part of Josie Long will be played by the scientist Helen Chersky. Hello.
1: Hello,
2: and thank you to Josie and Beck and whoever else isn't here so I can. It's very exciting. It's like a,
0: a, a very speedy kind of Doctor Who regenerations that are just going on persistently. <laughs> and um, we're joined by Chris Lintott, who is uh, d- wonderful work in terms of astronomy and explaining the, the sky and what lies within it and what lies further beyond it. And uh, he's written a book which, according to Brian May, is readable. So Great. I mean... This is fantastic. this is this is the thing that excites me first of all. The crowd and the cosmos adventures in the Zooniverse, you know it is a book you can read, is that right?
3: That's the idea, you can read it. It uh, opens up and then there are words on pages which you could absorb into your brain. And if, if Brian, a particle physicist, can have, have achieved this and drive some modicum of Oh, this is Brian it. May, who's, yeah. Oh, Brian May thought yeah. it's readable, yes. Yeah, no, well, Brian's Bri- Brian, Cox, Brian Cox also he, thinks He says it's, it's, it's written. Um, well, all i all mean, your to be quotes honest, provided sorry, by people called Brian. I wanted that. Mm-hmm. I wanted Brian's, Brian's May... Uh, and then obviously Cox, and then Schmidt, uh, Brian Schmidt, who won the Nobel Prize for discovering the accelerating universe. But the publishers um, thought somebody called Martin would be better, so we've got uh, Martin. Eno instead. would have been good. Yes, or blessed indeed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> blessed. What a fucking book!
0: Brian, blessed. <laughs> um, we'll,
3: we'll add that to the next edition, Robin.
0: Thank you. We'll we'll start off with. I'm, I'm going to, you know, make it. An honest, first of all, you know, for a lot of people, the zooniverse. This is not a phrase that they know. What does the zooniverse mean?
3: So the zooniverse is what I've been doing for the last twelve years in most of my waking hours. It started as a sort of desperate plea for help. Really, we had one of those everyday problems of having too many galaxies, which is something that happens to everyone at some point during their lives. Um, not we the had... real
2: chocolate fiends, though. No, no, right. that's
3: no, no, that's fine. These are distant galaxy systems of stars, and they need sorting out by shape. And so we did what any self-respecting group of academics oh, would do. Oh, so
0: when you say too many galaxies, it wasn't like a moment of going, hang on a minute, if the universe is expanding at this rate, this number of galaxies, you literally mean literally this had... was an unmanageable <laughs> amount of galaxies. <laughs> Precisely sitting, right. so, yeah, yeah. In
3: fact, we had images of a, a million of them, and we still needed them to be sorted out by shape because the shape of a galaxy tells you about its history, tells you about how it's collided with other galaxies and when it's formed stars. Um, so we gave this pile of galaxies to a PhD student. A PhD student was called Kevin, not Brian, but Kevin, uh, and he looked at 50,000 of them, which did two things. One was it established that it really mattered to have people look at these images. Kevin completely outperformed the kind of machine learning that existed uh, about a decade ago. The second thing it showed, beyond all doubt, was that a PhD student wouldn't look at more than fifty thousand galaxies before they tell you where to stick the rest of them. I'd <laughs> uh, say so we tried bribing him with. I think that's know.
2: quite impressive, actually. Fifty thousand. It is was an, a, a long
3: month, I think. Was it month? going Spiral,
0: spiral, wow. elliptical, spiral. So is it? I mean, how much? So in terms of the
3: detail that they have to work on, is it reasonably clear or yes? Yeah, so it's a pretty a- simple pattern recognition problem. Right. I mean, th- this is what we realised, that anyone could do this. And so without really thinking about it, we we set up a quick website called Galaxy Zoo. We put up these images and we thought that maybe I could go and bully some amateur astronomers in Croydon or Guildford or somewhere and 50 of them would do 50 classifications and be a nice side project, a, a public engagement project. Um but the internet doesn't work like that. When things succeed, they succeed vastly beyond your imagination. And so the next day after we launched the website, we had 70,000 classifications an hour coming in from all sorts of people, um, most of whom had never thought about astronomy before in their lives. And so that suddenly we had this enormous crowd of people online when we talk about crowds online, we think of it as a negative thing. It's people uh, shouting abuse on Twitter or, or that sort of thing. But this crowd took part because they wanted to help. They liked the idea that they were helping science. And they quickly proved that they were actually better at this task. Not only better than machines, but better than Kevin. Because a Poor single. Kevin. E- oh, no, it Not worked. only an
2: entire month's work done in an hour by people he's never met, but they did it better.
3: They did, because a single expert makes mistakes. And it's, you could show mathematically, if you have a n- large enough crowd, and there's enough expertise in the crowd, that collectively we're better than any one of us on our own. And so Ke- uh, Kevin was outdone. We got through the rest of the galaxies. We could start to unpick the history of our local universe. So that was Galaxy Zoo. And then immediately, we started getting phone calls from scientists who study papyri or penguins or cells or all sorts of things saying, can you lend us some of your volunteers? Because we too have too much data. This this state of having got very good at collecting information, but not very good at analysing it is really common in modern science. Um, And so the Zooniverse is a collection of projects and people that that help these poor scientists out. And, And we've now run more than a couple of hundred different projects, which have produced scientific results in all all sorts of fields
2: and this does extend beyond because one of the common criticisms of of this type of citizen science is kind of taking people for mugs you know they they do the boring work and then the scientists get to do the fun stuff but i have met the the people who do you have a word for them they call themselves
3: zooites Zoites. okay
2: i've met some zooites um and they were really interesting because they were actually properly engaged in the science as well not just the I'm doing a useful task because it can be done.
3: Yeah, I think there's a couple But there are
2: some who really get interested in the...
3: That, that's true. ...analysis and we, and behind it. We, we've shown that... Um, well, we we see that people do spectacular things um, when they make discoveries or they find the unexpected. Lots of our volunteers go on to um, write those discoveries up to 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 lead the scientific uh, follow-up of, of some of the discoveries, which we we can talk about in a bit. But I I think there's a, there's a slight... Um, problem with your question which is that science is often boring right you're an academic scientist a lot of the time it's not um i will solve these equations and my god i now understand a giraffe
2: but the, the, the thing with as an academic scientist is that you know you will get the prize at the end right you like this morning yesterday actually i was tearing my hair out and actually it's the same problem of data it's like transferring data from a hard drive onto a laptop and formatting and it wasn't talking to each other and I spent three hours getting really but I know that when I get it right I will get to do the analysis or I get the sweetie at the end right
3: so I think so, it's important that when we get to the end of the process, that we acknowledge everyone who's taken part in that. I think that's true, even if I wasn't doing this sort of citizen science, which is what we call it, you know, to do my research, there are people who've written the software that I use, there are people who built the telescope uh, that I use, there are people who operate that and, and we're not very good at giving them credit either. Um, so I think if we if we take the scientific enterprise broadly, then citizen scientists fit within that. I have to uh, briefly tell a story. I discovered the telescope that provided the images of galaxies, uh, the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. Um, I was just thinking of the different people involved. There are two jobs uh, involved in running the telescope at night, and they're known as the cold observer and the hot observer, because one of them gets to sit inside in the warm and do the computery bits, and the other one's outside at the telescope, prodding it and making sure it works. So that's about as unglamorous as it gets, if the temperature in which you're working is in your job description. Um, but as much part of the science as I am, as the c- citizen scientists are, and, and so on. But it is true that people who have never thought about science, when one of the glories of this stuff is that when they encounter uh, science for the first time like this, and they realise that they're not just reading about it, but they're contributing to it, then uh, they can... Uh, become as interested in the minutiae of the detail of the science as any professional astronomer. So there's one guy, Tom Jacobs, for example, um, who took part in a project we ran called Planet Hunters, which looks for planets around other stars, and and we found some. But Tom was reading through old papers online, discovered that there was a prediction of what an exocomet would look like in the kind of data we were looking at. And he went back through data for 201,374, I think, stars from NASA's archive, and he found one star which showed this particular pattern. And so he wrote to the researchers in the field and said, by the way, I found your exocomet, please write this up for me. Now, he wasn't an astronomer to begin with, he had no idea he was going to be interested in exocomets, But because he had this simple interaction of going to a website, answering a question, being told that that was something useful for science. Uh, then it inspired this desire to do more and, and dig deeper. And uh, The Zooniverse has done that to lots of people. It, it, it's the greatest thing about the project, I it's, think.
2: Well, it's great when people get a buzz from it. It used to, uh, you know, and I've done field work. Like you said, there's loads of people involved. And, and it, it's very striking to me that logistics people and the engineers, and they're quite often they'll have to do a boring job like being polar bear guard, which basically <clears> means standing <throat> there freezing cold and looking at white. And they will happily do it because they know the scientist is doing something good. And it's kind of an interesting thing that some people are just are happy to do a thing as long as they, they know it helps and, somebody, and that's enough. And yeah, that's we great. got our
3: marketing wrong to begin with because we, we, we thought the big attraction of the original Galaxy Zoo was that you were looking at an image that literally no one had ever seen before. And that's still true. We put new data up most weeks. If you go to Galaxy Zoo and you... Uh, click you will probably see a galaxy that no one else has ever seen before which is kind of a nice idea and it's very different from the everyday actually what people wanted to know was that their tiny amount of effort would be useful and that collectively it would become something so it really is this desire to help and to be part of the scientific enterprise that that drives people and um that's been actually rather moving and inspiring for us as we've tried to build these projects and and work out what we could do with the data that we get that way, because it really has been donated by people on on trust that we will complete the process and and turn it into a, a scientific discovery
0: well I think that's one of the hardest things now isn't it is working out your use and that's what you realize when you see people getting older as well when you you know it's only when you you start to get to kind of middle age and stuff and you get to know older people better and better and other and you go that moment where one of the biggest problems of age is not merely kind of infirmity, but it's like, what use am I? And it's a very sad thing to see, I think, to go, you know, as you... And, and that moment as a human being, and people, so many people have professions where they think, what on earth is it that I actually do? You know, we don't build things necessarily. You know, for a lot of people, that level of creativity, that level of being able to see something solid at the end of the day, which has been created or pulled out by you or whatever it might be, is not there. So I can see that that is... You know, I mean that's what interests me when you talk about the use of social media because i I do think we have all this very negative side of the way that it's been manipulated by politics and bots and all of these things all of these truths that I think are very tenuous but then actually do become actual truths due to the kind of you know the the this this simulated world and then uh you but you can use social media if, if you curate it you can turn it into quite a positive space. Not to say that not all the bullshit's going on around you, but you go, oh, today I merely had lovely conversations about an interesting thing that was discovered about a dinosaur and the tune that I put up, and that that kind of that I think helps. Right as for, well.
3: for me, I think that we really realised the power of that with something called Burujin Star, which was discovered by a, a bunch of our uh citizen scientists um they were using data from nasa's kepler mission which looks for it's the planet hunting one it looks for dips in light when the planets get in front of the star and they found this star that was called kic 8462852 but which they called the wtf star uh because it did nothing interesting for a year and then it dipped for a few hours it was 20 percent less bright than it normally was and then it came back to normal brightness and carried on uh stars don't do this and then after another year for about two months it went all over the place it was brighter it was fainter it was like a christmas decoration on the blink uh when you're first trying to get the bulb to connect and no other star that we've ever studied has ever done anything about this and the volunteers looked at it they came up with ideas about what it was um and then they challenged us to try and try and work out what it was so the first thing we did was publish the paper that said here's a star it's misbehaving and um, we got into trouble with the journal because we called it the WTF star, but you have to spell <laughs> out all acronyms in the uh, monthly notes uh, of the Royal Astronomical <laughs> Society. So um, we eventually decided it stood for where's the flux, because that's the <laughs> science, central scientific problem. Um, and then, really, it was a waiting game. There's a, there's a long, interesting story of in the book where some other researchers think that, think that the dips are caused by an alien megastructure, um, which was an idea we thought we should test. Um, How do you test that? Well... Um, What we wanted to do was to spot, um, we wanted to catch the star in the act of dipping Mm -hmm. so we could get more information about whatever it was that was obscuring the star. So we had a network of robotic telescopes around the world keep an eye on the star every six hours for about a year and a half. And then suddenly it started dipping. And why this is a story about social media is that Tabby Burjin, the researcher who was leading this this work, just tweeted the information that this star was about to to dip, and we had amateur astronomers and professional astronomers from around the world suddenly point every telescope we had at this star to try and solve this mystery and it all played out in public, so the results were discussed on Twitter. And the amateurs got the same access and, and the fans of this star who'd been following the story from the beginning got to, to follow along as, as large telescopes tried to, to look at it and work out what was going on. What, the reason why we know it's not an alien megastructure is that it turns out if you look at the, the star while it's dipping uh, through a red filter, one that lets red light through and, and then one that lets blue light through, the amount of dip is different. And so whatever's blocking the light from the star is not a solid object. So you can't have a nice solid alien space. Station. And did they
2: believe you? Because that's the sort of that's a the theory that that's the sort of theory people come up with when they
3: really want it to be true. It would have been fun to discover aliens. It would have. I'm told <laughs> by the publishers it would have helped the sale of the book <laughs> if I if I could have claimed that we'd discovered aliens. But um, I think what it has stimulated is there's now a whole bunch of researchers looking for other stars that do things like this. There's now a few other stars that have these dramatic dips. Nothing quite this spectacular, and we need to see whether some of those may fit other hypotheses or which may fit the, uh, the alien uh, megastructure hypothesis. I think the thing that ruled it out for me as well was we went back to the archives in Harvard where they've got these marvellous old photographic plates from telescopes going back to the 1920s. And we found this star on 15 of these plates and we could measure its brightness. So we had a 100-year timeline and it's actually been fading very slowly over the course of 100 years. As we've got two mysteries, we've got the slow fade and then this rapid dip. Uh, obviously, the slow fade is the aliens constructing a larger and larger spaceship. Uh, you can work that out. Uh, but but it, actually, the, there's still this mystery about what the star is. But it but it started with somebody on our, our website doing a very human, simple thing of saying, "This is odd. I haven't seen this before. What is it?" That's how sophisticated does it, does the science it is. It doesn't
2: matter it's something they're never going to see, because I know that now the Universe site or Galaxy Zoo has. Is it Zooniverse? Or Gal- am I confusing universe is,
3: is the suite of projects. Galaxy Zoo right. is, is one project. Because there's yeah. all
2: sorts of... It's not just astronomy projects no, now, right? There's ship logs and penguins yeah. and things. And do you find that people... Because the thing that's always struck me about... The thing about the stars is that you can't ever go and poke it, right? This is why I'm an experimental physicist who does things on the ocean lab. I like poking. I like to be able to see it. Does it make? Do you find there's a difference in the interest in the project, whether it's because if it was like a ship log, for example, it was written by a human and they were on the ship here, and you can sort of relate to that. Whereas if it's a star in the sky, it's a lot farther away. But then it's also there's the cosmos, and sort of these luminous, big ideas. Yeah, isn't yeah. um, it
0: was, all over and done with? it? I would say the longevity as well, because once you've prodded that cuttlefish, right, then you've done it. Whereas that. That level of you still can't reach it, you still can't... I I think it adds... (laughs) An extra of you know level of kind of yeah. the enigmatic well, to the evidence based.
3: There are definitely different people, different projects for different people. It's one of the fun things of running such a large platform is you watch people find their own project and get enthusiastic about their thing. Um, I do talk a bit in the book about how I got interested and excited by astronomy, and for me it was the sense that you couldn't touch it that was exciting. Even as a physicist, I like simple problems, and astronomy presents simple problems because we can only make simple measurements. I've got this galaxy which contains a hundred. Billion or so stars. It's probably existed for. Oh. It's probably existed for seven or eight billion years. Uh, it's had a complex attraction. There's gas. There's dust. There's dark matter, and all the rest of it. And I reduce it to what colour is it? What shape is it? You know, and how big is it? And that I can deal with. And so for me, astronomy is a, a wonderful playground of physics questions that are simple. I don't get to do experiments, but I get to get to reduce my data to something tractable. Um, whereas, you know, I don't know if you get a particle in the lab and you look at its properties when it's moving at point three Kelvin or something, things get complicated pretty quickly. Back to the aliens. Um, <laughs> I uh, th- this is
0: there's a great book that I picked up early this year, which is from the National Archive. They've they do various, and it's all different people's sketches of the UFOs that they observed. Brilliant. And of course, there are boom times, as we know. That I I think both the 50s and the 70s are are pretty good boom times for 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 UFOs. Yeah, and, and there's an earlier
3: one. There's a sort of 20s one where they're they're flying zeppelins. There's a sort of alien zeppelin. Uh, period now, what as would well. be the
0: culture? Because of course, the fifties, basically, you did. What well, at the moment you then have science fiction movies like The Day the Earth Stood Still, Earth versus Flying Source, etc. Then they go up for the late seventies. It would probably be Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I'm I'm sure there will have been a boom then in in observation. And then ten years ago, when Chinese lanterns went on mass, right? Yes. But it, but so the twenties. What would that have been? The uh,
3: I'm not sure. I think it's certainly, it's a so little after the first sci-fi and so on, but it, it, I, I, I've i read things that tie sort of sightings of UFOs to what you think is going on in the world. So at a time when one is afraid of the other or, or where, where things are tense, you begin to, to see threats. And, and UFOs are often perceived as threatening, right? No one ever has a close encounter with a bunch of aliens who need directions to Proxima Centauri, right? And are happy to pay for the privilege or whatever. It's, it's always a bit more Sinister and dark than that, and so, so I think the the alien thing is interesting. We we did run a project looking for alien life with the SETI Institute for a while, uh, which proved to be very difficult to do, uh, and we didn't find any. But people were motivated for all sorts of reasons, and and one of the reasons people came into that project was because they felt uh, that there was this evidence that had been covered up. But they were people with quite a dark work worldview.
2: And were they think, convinced when they, when they had access to due data, did that change their view that things were being covered up or did it just make them think that all the real data was somewhere else?
3: I Because that, that's I, an
2: identity I, thing, isn't yeah, it? That's I, not a data-driven I, hypothesis. I, I, I don't know yeah. what the
3: answer is. I hope that they got some understanding of the fact that the, the data is difficult, right? That no radio telescope has an alien-detecting box that counts to one <laughs> and then two occasionally. It's not, it's not that simple and, and that things are messy. Um, we get all sorts of unexplained signals all the time we're just they're almost certainly from earth or, or orbiting satellites but tracking down what they are is very very difficult
0: well i was, i mean how far away would you have to be from the earth for for instance in terms of being able to observe visually observe uh the idea there's any life on it
3: i mean you don't have to be very far away do you well i think It depends what you count as evidence. So we're building telescopes now that will have instruments that will tell us about the atmospheres of nearby Earth-sized planets. And if you did that from, let's say, any of the nearest couple of thousand star systems looking back at Earth, I think you'd realise that there was oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere. And if you knew some chemistry, you'd realise that that meant that it wasn't in equilibrium. Um, and so either there's some weird geology going on or there's some life. So, so I think from that you'd get the first hint that there was life here. Um, to get more than that, I think unless you're going to detect our radio signals, which is increasingly difficult because we're going quieter, um, then I think you, you kind of have to visit the solar system to get a, get a decent idea that there really is life here. So my hope is that this generation of telescopes that we're building will give us a clear target, a nearby star with an Earth-like planet that has an atmosphere that hints at life. Uh, And I think that would be an enormous spur to further exploration if we knew we had somewhere to go or somewhere to send a probe with a camera. I could see that inspiring people. But if you, if you want to know how difficult this stuff is, look at Mars at the minute. People have been analysing the Martian atmosphere, particularly looking for methane, because there's a sense that if you see methane, it's either interesting geology or it's farting bacteria underneath the surface, and a sign that life's still existing there. And um, the Curiosity rover, which is trundling around a place called Gale Crater, has uh, at least once, and possibly more than once, um, driven through a belch of methane, a, a sort of localised emission Uh, which sounds like a euphemism, but never mind, um, of methane. But then there's an orbiter in orbit called the Trace Gas Orbiter, a European mission that's supposed to settle this question, and it can't find any evidence of methane at all. So there's something missing in our understanding of the chemistry or in what's happening on Mars. And Mars is a planet we can send robots to land on. We've had robots in orbit around for the last 20 years in which we can study well from Earth. So if we can't work out Mars's atmosphere... Trying to get the detail of what's happening in the atmosphere of an exoplanet around another star is going to be an exciting challenge. Mm-hmm. It's going to be difficult, but it, it, it's going to be a, an interesting bun fight for 30 years or so to try and disentangle what's going on. Something that I found
0: slightly, in, in terms of the citizen science side, I think all of this is very is great. It gives you a tremendous sense of optimism. But I was chatting to a friend of mine who recently wrote a book about uh, the Apollo missions. And he, it's led to him going off to do various corporates around the world. And he reckons that on an average day, when he goes out there and starts talking to them, one third of people in that room don't believe we landed on the moon. Really? Now, in every
2: is, in which in which places, these, these are businesses.
0: These are but in like any not, countries, non- like yeah, he, he's n- generally wherever he, I, I I think there they will all be uh, he would generally be doing uh, countries with English or with very good English, you know, where, where there's not too much. So, this
2: includes America and in England, yeah, and, and
0: he he said he's been quite taken aback by the like this kind of. It's a very this is a very rough estimate, by the way. I'm mm. obviously, but that I, I wondered again in in terms of that balance because I think at the moment we are going through such a a strange time where, well, I mean, it's always strange time, as long as they're humans, so it's a silly thing to say. But um, in terms of there seem to be an enormous number of people that I come across who are really enthusiastic about science. They're not scientists, but they're excited and they want to read more about it. And they want, you know, the crowd and the cosmos will be on their Christmas list. They want to know what's going on. Then there's the other side where the level of cynicism is you know, and 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 dismissiveness, whether it's about, you know, moon landings, whether it's about vaccination, whatever. It seems the middle ground is the area where which is, you know, kind of so- oh there's not
3: but I think there is a huge middle ground. So, so people who study science education sometimes sort people into you have the science phobic people that you're talking about, who've already, whether they're anti vax or, or moon landing conspiracists, who have really, that's their identity, mm-hmm. is that they are not and do not believe in modern science. Then you have the science fans who keep several of us in business <laughs> in this room, who buy books and, and, and so on. But there is this middle ground where people are usually characterized as something like science, science attentive. So, what that means right. is if you. If you go back 20 years ago and you remember when everyone read a daily newspaper, um, these people would, if they saw a science story, they'd stop and read it. Um, and I think you see those people when you look at things like um, the Rosetta mission, which went to Comet Chomo of Gersomenka and and had that little probe that bounced around on the surface. For those few days, because it was on leading news bulletins, it was on the front pages of papers, it was more or less inescapable. Everyone became a science fan maybe not the 10% of people who are science-phobic, Mm. but everyone else was suddenly into, oh, yeah, we landed that thing on the thing. Wasn't that cool? Um, You saw it with the uh, black hole image, uh, the Event Horizon Telescope image of a a black hole in the centre of the galaxy M87, which was released uh, in, what, April this year. Um, You know, scientifically... It's an impressive feat and it's interesting because it tells us that we might go on and, and get more such images and learn more. But actually, the real impact of that was cultural. So I saw an estimate the other day, three and a half billion people saw that image.
2: I found that really interesting because I saw, I saw that in news and went, oh, that's really cool. And then sort of forgot about it, yeah, to be honest. Yeah. I was like, oh, you know, that, I, I understand the c- concept of doing that. Someone's done it well done right and then my badminton coach of all people who's sort of interested in stuff but wouldn't read science was like oh did you see the picture of the black hole yeah. and that was when it really came home that and I, I it was it was shocking to me and it was a lesson for me that i had just kind of i'm so used to the amazing things that science can do that a picture of a black hole isn't is the same kind of but category you, as you, a picture of something but else? you believe
3: or? deeply that black holes exist because you've been convinced by the arguments. Most people sort of had this idea that they were this weird fuzzy thing, and so a picture is proof to most people. <laughs>
0: Sorry to interrupt your podcast, but I just quickly wanted to let you know about the thing, which is that Bookshambles and the Cosmic Shambles Network exist thanks to generous pledges of our listeners on Patreon. If you want to support the podcast and what we do, tiers start at just $1 a month, and you'll get all sorts of goodies thrown in, so go to patreon.com slash bookshambles.
3: And so one of the things we try to do with Zooniverse, and we're not the solution to this by all means, or not the complete solution, is I think participating in these projects do give people a way of talking about science with their non-scientist friends. Because what did you do yesterday? Oh, I found a galaxy, or I I looked Mm. for a planet. So, So it's a way of putting science into those spaces. The other thing that's changed, I think, maybe this has always been true, but the science that people are running across is headline science. It's impressive people mostly men, mostly white, mostly in, in old universities, have done an impressive thing and you should be enthusiastic about it. We, don't, we do a very good job of presenting the struggle of science, the fact that it, it's hard most of the time, that it's done by young, uh, often young early career researchers, that it's teamwork and that sort of personalised story of science. Uh, but that's just stories, isn't it? That's because
2: yeah. humans like stories that have a hero and a villain and are structurally simple. And it's structurally very simple to say, character X, Mr. This- X, as you say, Dr. X, invented a thing and now everyone can do this. Yeah, And it's very structurally difficult to say, oh, well some things happened over the course of 20 years and lots of people did lots of things and eventually someone decided that we know something so
3: this is what that may or may not so, be relevant so this is what participating <laughs> in citizen science projects does for people or two people maybe is that you suddenly realize that it is complicated because you you click a button that says is there a planet in you know does this data reflect the presence of a planet Yes. Okay, what happens now? Well, now I need 10 other people to look at it. And then we're going to talk about it a bit. Then we're going to use another telescope. And we do all of that in the open. And because people have a personal collection, they're really invested in the in each step. And so people can see at least in our little world, that science is complicated and difficult and teamwork oriented and and collaborative. And I hope that when they then encounter the Dr. X has given a TED talk that says that he or she has proved Uh, emotion is related to hormone y or whatever that they have the mental machinery to go but hang on where's the next bit and where are the other steps and has it been published and and what tests have you done and so on so these are good training exercises for encountering other science headline science out out in the world and and we do see that that people come in not from the science fans Necessarily, the people we we talk to through our projects and and who work with us are not amateur astronomers for the whole. They're people who stumbled across it because a friend sent them a picture of a galaxy or. They followed but it's in.
2: interesting as well, isn't it? Because almost every other area of science is difficult. One of the difficulties with citizen science is that everyone has a cultural take on it. Whereas when you're looking at stars, most people don't have a cultural take on what shape this galaxy should be. Is there an interesting thing there that in terms of the types of projects that act as a good training ground, like you say? Because mm. if it's genetics, for example, just to pick one of the most thorny examples, people come into that and they've got their own identity, they've got their cultural, you know, backgrounds, They've got what they think their history is. They've got their own worldview. And so it's very hard if you were to ask someone to, to, to categorise humans, for example, for something you, they wouldn't do a good job. But with the case of the stars, because it's further away and we don't have a cultural unless, you know, is that I'm, an easier Yeah, I'm
3: thinking route? hard because I think we have run climate change projects that sit in the middle um, and where we were worried about people coming in on both sides, you know, people wanting from the goodness of their heart to prove that climate change was happening but equally people coming in from their own beliefs wanting to show that it it wasn't but those projects were remarkably free of rancor actually i think you're right that as you get close to medical projects to to sort of things about our own makeup i think i think it does become difficult to run simple projects of the type that we're talking about i certainly wouldn't want to do classify your where you just ask people uh, every you know every two minutes we'll show you a genome you tell me what the person's like that's obvious not obviously not what you're suggesting uh, but but the trick is to find the places where there's a meaningful contribution to be made like we test projects and actually we have volunteers test projects with us so that this promise that if you take part in this, and it will take a few minutes of your time, that we will actually use your data, that has to be held up because because that's the the contract with people and and that you're right, we're not going to run a theoretical quantum physics project anytime soon. Um, To my slight regret, there's a complete dearth of chemistry projects because chemists tend to be, I think it's less about big data, but it's also less about open data. So a lot of the large groups are trying to discover their thing that they can patent or which has medical or, or industrial use. And how
2: much of your own research is this now? So, I mean, you've obviously, you're involved and you've authored and co-authored papers that have come from mm. this data. Of your total research, I don't know, portfolio, whatever you call it. Like you mean how, the work
3: my students do? Yes. One of those things.
2: Um, but, I mean, is there, is the the has this become such a part of your scientific, your academic life that it's it's the majority now or I mean, is it it's still all of it
3: there's, there's two halves of it one is that my astronomy is done through this because it's a powerful way to see the cosmos particularly this idea of finding the really unusual stuff um the other half is sort of the meta research in how to do citizen science better um which these days often looks at how best to use machine learning because that's changed a lot in the 12 years we've been running this project how do we best combine what humans are good at with what machines are good at so what's the answer the answer is that you don't try too hard to turn the machines into into humans so you'd get a much better job on most of the problems we're dealing with if you let the machines do the stuff they're good at which is the stuff where you have large training sets where it's a well understood corner of the problem and you allow the volunteers um to look at the weird and unusual stuff around the edge By doing that, the machine gets better at its core task and the people get more interesting stuff to see. So there's all sorts of interesting wrinkles with that, um, mostly around the fact that we still want our projects to be interesting to people. There's a nice confounding example from a project called Snapshot Serengeti, where we have motion-sensitive cameras in the Serengeti, and the task is to identify which of about 50 species of animal are in the picture. But 70% of the images have no animals at all. The cameras malfunction or the grass waves or something or there's a very fast hyena or something that's gone past and you don't see anything. And it's a simple machine learning problem to get rid of those animal-less images. So we thought that was a good thing. And then people stopped participating on the site.
2: Because there's nothing to discover.
3: Well, it turns out nothing, 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 nothing zebra is it's much more. more exciting than Zebra, 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 Warthog, Zebra. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, we're, we're thinking of building a version of that site where we say, we know that if we send you some pointless images we don't need classifying, you will do more work. Would you like us to do that? And I'm going to be fascinated to see what choice will people make. I, I don't know, but it's a sort of interesting problem. So, my, yeah, my academic life is absorbed in trying to use the results that our volunteers provide and then find new and interesting ways to, to challenge them. It's been great fun. I was interested two things of
0: interest in me one is how long do you need to have a badminton coach for
2: um well so I am extremely fortunate with my coach um because he is one of the GB coaches so right. he coaches people from beginners right the way up to England players and so I have a like I'm not in danger of meeting the top reaching the top of the available scale here um but you know the the professional badminton players will have one all their lives right. or several
3: Anyway, I think that's good. I, I, I used to play badminton, but, you know what, so we can talk just, more about that. You know no, really, I don't want any
0: more badminton. <laughs> I just remember playing it in the garden and the idea of a coach, It's a it's brilliant a human it's a,
2: madness. It's, it's not, but it's, it's a fabulous sport that has all kinds of complexity. But what is interesting about my badminton coach is that he, I don't think he would describe himself as academic, but he is a better observer and analyst of the world than almost only one I've met. And it's interesting that it comes out in sports coaching and, you know, we're talking about science where we take those skills of observation and analysis, and you do it as well, you know, you take that for granted. And he wouldn't consider himself an, an academic, and yet he is absolutely superb at that sort of very in-depth, detailed, nitpicky Break, picking a problem apart, I'm, I was just gonna breaking say that, it down to could, its could, elements. And could, he will say, what you just did then is you put your foot slightly too far back and that meant your weight shifted here and that meant your body didn't rotate and then you hit, and then you miss hit the shuttle. And it's so similar to science. And that's why he's an extremely good coach is because he spots those yeah. patterns, actually. So, so actually, when I'm on a badminton court now, it's much closer to science. And I do, do sport because I like running around. But being coached by him in particular has become much more it's become a much more intellectually fulfilling game. So anyway, that you were, you didn't want to talk about badminton no, anymore. It's just interesting. Really interesting. And I presume you
0: were drawn to it because there's a kind of height that a shuttlecock. Th- that's comes up right. To, yeah, which then I you can look calculate the quickly. sky as yeah. well. Yeah, exactly. And then eventually there was a point where you noticed you didn't notice the shuttlecock came back because you're observing some kind of constellation.
3: That's right. Or a meteor went past or something. These days I play real tennis, but I've had exactly oh. the, I've had exactly <laughs> the same experience of, of somebody being able to say what's wrong with the shot. He said, "Well, there are nine things wrong with that shot, and here they are." It's breaking a problem down. But we're oh, boring. Would, Robert, we, we, no, we're badminton shambles isn't it? Well, week. you should do the, but
2: real... Because te- he took me to play real tennis once and it is a bonkers game. It's like that the
3: one where it goes up on a wall? That's and, right.
0: And, yeah. 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 Now and That, that is
2: form. the cosmic shambles of sport, that <clears> game. Right. It's complete nonsense. True. Nobody understands the rules. You change sides for no particular reason and <laughs> extra people turn up and the racket's off to, like, skew if. It's ludicrous.
3: Helen really enjoyed it, as you can, as you can hear. Well, I yeah. was quite <laughs>
2: curious about it, but I... And, you know, but it was just... Of all, I mean, all sport is a construct, right? It's kind of a complicated thing that you do because it's fun, uh, without the fun having a reason behind it. You invent a, you invent a reason to do it. But um, of all, it is yes, it's particularly
3: so, unusual. So, so this is this to get back to citizen science. I think one of the most common, no, no. So <laughs> the... I had a nice segue no, what, there, and everything. How oh, did you go? Yeah, on well, I was going to say one of the things that people often say to us is, well, you could make it a game right why haven't you made galaxy classification a game because people like games we get points for checking in here or swiping a loyalty card at the supermarket or whatever and and certainly whenever i talk to an audience of developers they don't understand why we don't have a happy cartoon astronomer who's awarding you points and setting you missions <laughs> and so on but i think it's it's exactly what just came out there was that you play sport it's a construct you invent some rules so that you and, and some points that you're aiming for but you know that it's not real for all the emotional investment in talky winning 2-1 I know that you know it's essentially a random construct Um, we don't want to do that with these projects I'm sure it would be, I know it would be effective to turn these into a game that sets you a daily challenge and that asks you to classify 10 galaxies before bedtime and awards you more points than your neighbour and and so on but I think you lose this sense if you do that that you're participating in sort of authentic science Mm. you lose that effect of the life changing effect of like I did something real Suddenly you're in this designed game, this environment. But that's going to
2: become more common, isn't it? Because I think, you know, talking about this gamified world where people have realised an easy way to motivate people is to turn it into a game. And it does feel as though actually that's making them powerless because you can only play a game someone else has invented.
3: Right. And And people are
2: not inventing their own games anymore.
3: Yeah, so one of our researchers we worked with uh, from Manchester Business School looking at uh, what people were doing talked about gamised behaviour, which is games people invent using. So we had a lot of our volunteers collected galaxies that looked like animals. And that was positive. But if we'd said to them, we've hidden in this data set right. three images of a penguin and four of a dog, then that's it, it, you, you don't have any power or agency in that. The the game thing's interesting. We, we had a project called Old Weather, which you've already mentioned, which was rescuing um, the observations of the weather from Royal Naval ship's logs for climate change purposes. You want the historical data to inform your models of the climate's past so you can test how well you can predict the future. Um, and it, I was very worried it was an incredibly dull project because you're just typing in numbers from a ship's log. Um, and so we turned it into a game. When you joined the project, you were assigned a ship. You were given a rank on the ship. As you did more pages, you got promoted in, got promoted all the way to captain. You got a special badge. You know, perfectly bog-standard gamification. The first thing to say is that it worked. So people did much more work than they would have done otherwise. Um, there was one ship in the data set that we didn't realize was actually a building. So it turned out to be the training centre in Liverpool, but it was HMS, whatever, uh, and it didn't go anywhere. But yet people worked their way through the whole log because they wanted to maintain their rank on that ship, even though it was incredibly dull. Um, However, when we interviewed people, just that simple act of giving them points to aim for and a rank to, to shoot for had completely changed how they talk about the project. So they went from talking... People normally talk about projects as fun and inspiring and interesting and mind-blowing and all of these things. These people talked about it as stressful. They said it was work. They said that they struggled to find time to do it, uh, that they felt a sense of responsibility. And so you... Because people, human beings, are really sensitive to sort of being set a game and a challenge you really do change people's mindset when you do that
0: there's an interesting one of the things that I've, there was there's lots in the book that interest me great but also when you talk about observing the collision of galaxies mm. and i know it's often being talked about there's a lot of space in space but the fact that when at one point you talk about you know in a collision of galaxies, actually the likelihood of anything, any kind of matter striking each other is, is incredibly That's low. Right. So
3: we know the Milky Way is going to collide with Andromeda in about four to six billion years' time. Um, and both galaxies have got 100 billion stars or so, a you know, factor of two or three uh, taken for granted. Uh, and yet none of those stars will collide because there's so much space between the stars. But what does happen uh, is that the um, gas can collide. So if you get two gas clouds colliding, then they will collide. And that will cause, we think, this huge burst of star formation. And one of the big arguments that we've used galaxy zoo data to try and and resolve is whether when that happens, that's the most significant event in the history of a galaxy. In other words, if your collision determines the future of the galaxy from then on most stars form um this new structure is set and so on or whether it's actually a little bit like november the 5th fireworks they look Mm. spectacular you get this nice sprinkling of new stars but actually the galaxy settles back down uh, to where it was before and the evidence that we're finding from galaxy zoo is that actually it's much more the latter so these are spectacular events Um, I certainly recommend staying around to to watch the Milky Way collide with Andromeda. The sky will be beautiful with all these young stars uh, forming. But... um the history of the galaxy is more subtle than that. It relies on sort of hidden interactions with its surroundings that we're trying to disentangle. What speed is that?
0: As you talk about stars forming, so if you were observing this, Mm you know, what what time scale are we talking about?
3: So stars, so the actual collision is quite slow, so it takes a couple of billion years to play out. So it's like this cosmic dance as the two galaxies collide, they go past each other and then they come back in, and all that time, the disruption in the galaxy is causing star formation to happen. Um, Star formation, once you trigger it, takes a bit less than a million years it's pretty fast by astro- astronomical uh, processes and so um you get this sort of million year process sparkling away for a couple of a couple of billion years and then you end up with a single galaxy at the end and then the last thing to happen is that both of the galaxies have big black holes at their center and maybe another couple of billion years after that those two black holes will merge at the centre. So the last thing that happens is you go back to having a single black hole at the centre. Um, one of the things we're looking at is trying to work out if we can look at nearby galaxies and find out if they have binary black holes in the centre, that would trace, that would tell us that they have had a recent merger. But we haven't worked out how to do that yet.
0: Um, we're pretty much out of time, so I would want to ask you, in, in 2019, what books have you particularly enjoyed in terms of, uh,
3: are there any science books that have, have stood out? I've gone back to reading old science books, partly because I was trying to work out how to finish off this book. So I read a lot of Stephen Jay Gould, mm. like his essays for Natural History magazine, I think it was, where he wrote, the first. I think, 40 years, he wrote these monthly essays. Oh God, there's an enormous number yeah, of volumes. Yeah, but, the but Bully really for Brontosaurus is a good one. And yeah. just his ability to grab you, get your attention... And then tell you some science and then put you back where you were a few pages later is just beautiful. So so I've been reading a lot of that and, and some Steve Jones as well. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of kind of biological. Um, the, the book that will stick with me is I read an old book by Tom McCarthy uh, called Remainder. I don't know if you've read that, it's sort of a modernist novel. But it's about, man, he's had some sort of accident and he can't remember the accident or much of his life before. And so there are two things he clings to. One is that he's given an enormous amount of money. As a settlement from the accident, whatever it was, and secondly, he can remember being happy in this particular flat, and so he sets out to completely recreate the flat by buying a whole block of buildings and employing people to act on as they were on a particular day that he can remember. And it's sort of I read it earlier in the year and it's it's stuck at the back of my brain. Uh, and I sort of need to recreate the feeling I had when I read it but uh, but I highly recommend it it's, it, it's a page turner and then it gets weird at the end but but that's going to stick with me
0: uh, one of my favorites is Will Eaves's Murmur we did a, uh, a an episode of book shambles with Will Eaves's fascinating book with a kind of an imagined uh life of Alan Turing after his uh, um, chemical castration uh back and forth in time and it's uh, it's it's absolutely um Brilliant. Um, anyway, so yeah, go go to cosmicshambles dot and go to uh, also yeah. If you want to see on my Twitter account, we'll put up both my books of the year and other people's as well. Uh, but we'll end just by saying yeah, Chris Lintot, uh, the crowd in the cosmos is. Uh, it makes I've got I've got, an, a, I've got a telescope, but I haven't got a window that I've got this this skylight which is exactly the wrong position. To uh, you can open it either way, and neither way means that you can see the whole sky, and it's infuriating
3: buy enough copies of the book and you can prop the telescope up so it looks out of the skylight
0: that's an excellent idea uh, The uh, um, so thank you very much Chris Lintot and thank you very much Helen Chersky and uh, Crown the Cosmos, Adventures in the Zooniverse is hang
3: on, just check the date, it's actually out is it's out, it, yes it's so out it came, now? came out in the UK about a month ago um, and they're just getting rid of all the U's so it can come out in the States in January
1: fantastic, bye bye Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support us. Uh, Your support on there means this podcast exists. It doesn't without your support. So thank you very much indeed. Chris's book is out now. Robin's book, uh, books really, are out now. Uh, Same with Helen. Her books are out now. Check out cosmicshambles.com for all the other fun bits and bobs we are up to. Have an excellent week. We will be back with a brand new episode next week. This
0: podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.
1: Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced
0: by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.